0: I have a question for you this morning. How many of you have ever read a passage of scripture and thought, you know, this is what I think it means. And then you actually read it and then you're like that's not what it means at all. Have any of you ever had that experience where somehow actually reading the text made you realize that what you thought this passage meant isn't actually what's on the page. Have any of you ever had that experience? <laughs> I know that this week for me, as I was prepping this sermon, I had a little bit of that experience with this passage, and we are in this summer series on the lectionary, and I think one of the things that I love about preaching through the lectionary is that you don't get to just pick and choose the passages that you already like or you already know, and um, having the breadth of all the, the scriptures in the lectionary and having to preach through those things requires you to actually study the text. You can't just pull out a verse to prove a point you already had in your mind. You have to actually examine the text. And I think there's a lot of popular passages out there, right? There's a lot of um, popularly quoted verses like John 3.16, for example. We all know that John 3.16 is often quoted and people hold signs at baseball games that say John 3.16. And yet, um, it's this often this very simplistic and individualistic idea of God loving me and saving me when when Really the book of John and even that verse is about a whole cosmic sort of universal salvation that is so much bigger than just an individual. Or I think about um, another popular one, I think, is Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, yay! <laughs> and oftentimes, I think there's like athletes, um, Tim Tebow being one of the famous ones who, you know, would tap, uh, mark Philippians 4.13 on his cheeks at, at different games, and there's a sort of sense of like, oh, it's for about me and me giving strength, and I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. When that whole book... Um, Paul wrote it from prison, (laughs) and it was about um, how do you find faith in the midst of imprisonment and suffering, And, and what does it mean to be faithful in the midst of empire, right? Or we think about Jeremiah 29, 11, the famous, for I know the plans the Lord has for me, plans to give me a hope and a future. And and not realizing like actually that that verse is about the people of Israel being in exile. And the plans that the Lord had were not actually very good plans <laughs> probably in their minds because the plans involved them being in exile for 70 years, uh, being stuck in captivity for 70 years. Those are the good plans that God had for them, Right. We don't often talk about uh, the ways that these verses, when read in context, say a completely different thing that is not so individualistic and not so, um, uh, it's just not what we expect sometimes. And this week I had a similar type of experience when I was studying this passage of First Kings nineteen. And I don't know about you, but you know, for me what I had often heard about First Kings nineteen is this sort of the, the part that's like, you know, there was this this big earthquake and then there was this wind and there was the fire and God was not in those things. But then there was this still small voice. And God spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice. <laughs> and that's how we often hear um, this passage preached. And, and yet when we look at the context of 1 Kings 19, um, there's, there's something way bigger than just this quaint little story of God speaking through a still, small voice that you know should lead us to retreats of silence and meditation and, and going to uh, do our quiet times. This is not what this passage is about. Uh, the backdrop of First Kings is is important to acknowledge because the book of First Kings is actually this chronicling of the people of Israel um, as they transitioned into the, this kind of period of monarchs, and. Um, Specifically in 1 Kings 19, in the beginning of 1 Kings 19, there's this detailing of the reign of Solomon, and then after Solomon comes all these different kings, and let me tell you, the vast majority of kings were not good kings, <laughs> and there was these shifts that started happening as the people of God went from this, this loose community of liberated people, people who were freed from slavery in Egypt, given a law to live by, and were worshiping through this tabernacle where God went with them wherever they went, that, that wherever they were, that's where God was, that's what the the worship was. Um, And then things started to transition in Solomon's reign. Um, I, I love this book. One of the most sort of impactful books that I've read in my life theologically is The Prophetic Imagination by Walter Brueggemann. And in this book, he actually talks about this shift from um, the religion of freedom that Moses enacted, this freedom from Egypt, this, this way of life that was meant to be a way of liberation as, as the people of Israel were freed from slavery in Egypt. Um, and the transition through the establishment of kings and monarchs, and in the reign of Solomon in particular, Solomon, I think we often think of him as a good king, and yet a lot of what he did um, started the transition of um, Israel kind of falling into this these systems of idolatry and injustice um, and um, oppression that that uh, that God ends up really judging the people of God for. And in the beginning of 1 Kings, it talks about how there's these shifts that happened, that the people of Israel were meant to have an economics of equality, that they were formerly slaves in Egypt, but in the way of God, under the law of God, there were things like jubilee and releasing debts every seven years. And, and people were not meant to be in perpetual um, systems of inequity. And yet, 1 Kings establishes this sort of economics of affluence and abundance that led to a disproportionality of who holds wealth and who holds power. And from that came a politics of oppression, that while the, the way that God wanted to lead the people into was a way of justice, uh, a way of liberation, that they were not meant to be oppressed like they were in Egypt. It starts to shift back to a politics of oppression. And, and this, this idea of who is God and where does God dwell, where um, the people who were freed from Egypt, you know, they were in the wilderness and God was with them. And, and they didn't have a temple, that they had a tabernacle, that wherever they went, the Tabernacle of God went. And just like we are right now worshiping at home, that was kind of a symbol of how um, the tabernacling people were, were meant to live and worship. And yet Solomon establishes this temple where God would only dwell here in this temple now. And it was sort of this fixed way that religion get, get, got static and, and put in a location, a physical building. Um, and God is not meant to be contained in a building. So this is the imperial world of 1 Kings. This is the backdrop of Elijah's life and ministry. Elijah comes in. He's called as a prophet. Um, and, and as a prophet, he's speaking out against some of these sayings, things, saying, hey, people of God, you've lost your way a little bit. This is not how we're meant to be. And in particular, this, these sorts of um, dynamics were mixed in with idolatry and idol worship. And so we know that in the ministry of Elijah, just previous to what happens here in today's passage there was this big confrontation with Elijah and these prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of Baal against this one prophet of Yahweh had this confrontation and Elijah and these prophets of Baal were put out these sacrifices and said you know whatever the true God is they will light these sacrifices on fire and 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 Yahweh came out on top Elijah was victorious and it was proven to the people of Israel that you know no these are not true True gods. The, the the Baal that you're worshiping is not the true God. Yahweh is the true God. And as Elijah was doing that, he was put in confrontation with the king at that time, King Ahab and the queen of that time, Queen Jezebel. Most of you have heard probably the name Jezebel, uh, but Queen Jezebel was known to kill all the prophets of Yahweh. And because Elijah comes out victorious in this confrontation with the prophets of Baal, um, Jezebel and Ahab say, hey, we need to kill this guy. And so Elijah runs away, he um, he flees, he's afraid for his life and he comes to this broom tree and basically says like, I just want to die here. I don't even want to live. My life is threatened and I just want to die. Um, and he kind of curls up under this broom tree and then this angels come and minister to him and feed him and say, hey, get up. Um, your work is not done. You got to get up and feed. And so he's fed and nurtured. And so, and then, um, and then Elijah kind of is, uh, in the wilderness for 40 days. And this is the backdrop of this, this, um, uh, this is the backdrop of what happens in today's passage. That this encounter with God and Elijah comes on the backdrop of this whole story of Elijah in the midst of these monarchies, in the midst of these corrupt kings who are distorting the way of God. And Elijah, who was called in confrontation with the powers of that time, um, the the rulers of that time, um, he is running away. He's running away from his call. And so what we come to in this story is that Elijah's had all of this happen. He's sort of in this despondent, despairing place. He's like, everything is against me. Everyone is against me. And in the wilderness... Um, on the Mount of Horeb, which um, most scholars say Mount Horeb is the kind of other side of Mount Sinai, the Mount Sinai and Mount, Mount Horeb are the same place, which is significant because Moses is a prophet who was called, um, who had a significant encounter with God on Mount Sinai as well, and in this place where um, where Moses also had an encounter with God through an earthquake and through a fire and through wind, Elijah also has this encounter. And at the beginning of this, God says to Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Why are you here? Why are you here on this mountain in the wilderness, away from this thing that I've called you to? And Elijah's response um, is, you know, he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord. The Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets. I alone am left. They're seeking my life to take it away. He's like, I am alone. I'm the only one. I'm going to die. I'm not okay. And, and this is when God says, go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And this is when this famous thing happens. The Lord actually, watch this. The Lord says to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain. Get out of this cave. Get out of your hiding. Come out. Come out to stand on this mountain. Um, and then, you know, that's when this, there's this great wind. There's this great earthquake. There's this fire. And it says, the Lord was not in these things. And then there was a sound of sheer silence some translations say a still small voice. And when Elijah hears the silence, that's when he wraps his face in his mantle and goes out and stands at the cave. So God has said, come out. (laughs) And then there's this earthquake and this fire and this wind. And and Elijah's hiding in the midst of that. (laughs) And it's only when it's quiet that he actually comes out. He comes out of hiding. And God, as if to remind him and say, like, you can't run away from me. You can't run away from this. He asks him again, the very same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answers the very same way. He has not changed his answer. He says the exact same thing. And this is significant, because I think a lot of times when we read this passage, we're like, oh, Elijah was in this place and God spoke to him through the sound of silence. And actually what's happening here is that Elijah is on this mountain, running away and maybe kind of trying to figure out what is he doing with his life, running away from his call as a prophet. And God is calling him back into the role and the office of a prophet. Saying, don't forget who you are. Don't forget what I've called you to. Just because you're suffering, just because there's persecution in your midst, Doesn't mean you can just run away. And the sound of the silence is what draws um, Elijah out. And the Lord says to him, Go, return on your way. Return on your way. Go back. Return to what I've called you to. Return to the way of the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you're going to anoint these new kings. Um, And he says, And I will leave 7,000 in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And he says to him, you are not alone. You are not the only one. You're not the only one who's being faithful to this call. You are not alone. He says, I am the only one left. And God says, I will leave 7,000 for you, with you. And this is what God does in meeting Elijah in the silence and meeting him in despondency and meeting him in despair and meeting him in this sort of moment where he's, he's in crisis and trying to figure out how to proceed. God reminds him, says, you are called to be a prophet. Go return on your way. And he reinstates him and says, go, don't forget who you are. You can't run away from this. You can't run away from me. a little bit different than what we might have commonly thought about this passage, right? And as I was thinking about this passage this week, I couldn't help but just think about John Lewis. Um, I know that many of you know that John Lewis passed a couple weeks ago, and in in this time as people have been honoring the life, the legacy of John Lewis, um, I have been thinking about the ways that John Lewis was a prophet in our midst John Lewis um, was a prophet and, and this, I love this kind of modern day icon of John Lewis, you know, it says thousands of protests, 45 arrests, 33 years in Congress. And one of the things that has really struck me about the legacy of John Lewis is the long standing nature of his, his work and his prophetic ministry, that he was faithful to the end that he was faithful in the face of beatings, he was faithful in the face of arrest, he was faithful in the face of um, just so many different seasons of change. He was faithful to the end. Um, And this famous quote, and he says, sometimes change calls for a little trouble. And I was thinking about this because I was thinking about Elijah and the ways that Elijah, in the face of, um, Persecution in the face of death, in the face of struggle, was really in a place of despondency and despair, and uncertain of he could continue in his role as a prophet. And John Lewis had this his this quote that was um, cir- circulating on the internet um, that really stood out to me, and he says, "Do not get lost in a sea of despair. Be hopeful. Be optimistic. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is the struggle of." a lifetime never ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble necessary trouble john lewis was able to stay in the struggle Time and time again, when forces came against him, he returned on his way, he returned back. He knew that this call, the struggle for equality, the struggle for um, a, a world free from racism and oppression, a world of justice and liberation for all people, that this is not something that would happen overnight, that this was a struggle of a lifetime. And every single day he woke up and he said, I'm gonna be in the struggle. I'm gonna choose to be in the struggle. I'm not gonna hide in a cave. I'm not gonna run away. I'm gonna be in the struggle. And I think that this is what the, the word that God has for us today as we see through this story of Elijah, that there's sort of a, a both a warning and also an encouragement that in the midst of um, these times when I think it's easy to give in to despair, there's so many things that we see around us that, that can push us to a place of despair. We see the numbers, um, the disproportionate numbers of, um, of black and Latinx folks being um, sick and even dying from COVID-19. We, we see kind of the numbers and hear stories about people in prisons being sort of mass exposed to COVID-19. We hear stories, um, story after story, of continued stories of people being shot and killed by police. Even just this last week, we know that San Leandro police killed somebody in Oakland. We hear these stories. Uh, we, we continue to see that Brianna Taylor um, has not been brought to justice, that her killers have not been charged. And we, we hear all these things. We see these stories. We see these realities. We hear more and more of our, our friends, um, people we know who are getting sick, Uh, from COVID, people who are even passing, we see all the brokenness in our society, the brokenness of our leadership, we see um, the ways that uh, people are, um, you know, the wealthy are just continuing to be protected in this time, and the poor are so vulnerable in this situation, in this season, Um, and I I believe that in a, in a way, that in the way that God comes to Elijah in the midst of his despair, in the midst of his feeling of like, I'm the only one left, there's nothing left, there's no one left, this all is terrible. God comes to him and in this sort of uh, revelation of, of power and authority through these natural things and then in the silence, in this quiet, in this moment, god draws elijah out and says you are not alone i am leaving a remnant with you and for you go return on your way and this is good news it's good news for elijah and it's good news for us that we do not have to stay in the cave that we do not have to give in to despair we do not have to give in to despondency that we are called to a struggle of a lifetime and it's going to be a struggle. There's going to be things that are hard. It is not without persecution. It is not without um, without setbacks. It's not without things that are difficult. It's not without persecution. And yet we are called time and time again, and I believe we are called even now in this moment to return on our way. And you might think, well, I'm not Elijah. <laughs> I'm not a prophet. God hasn't called me to be a prophet. And yet... I'll say maybe individually we all play different roles in in the struggle for justice, in the struggle for liberation, in the struggle for the the restoration of um, the way of Jesus. We all have a different role. And yet the church together is called to take up the prophetic mantle, the prophetic office, just as Elijah was, just as Jesus was called to. We now, the church, are called to this prophetic office. To return God's community to a place of equality, to a place of justice, to a place where God is with us in all places, in all times. And God is saying, come out of that cave. Things might be hard you might uh, be facing loss, you might be in mourning, you might be seeing things happen around you that make you angry, you might see things that feel like, when is this ever going to change, God? When is this ever going to change? And yet we are called to be committed to be in this struggle for a lifetime, just like John Lewis was, just like um, Elijah was invited back into to return on our way. And so my question for us this morning is how is God calling you to return to the prophetic call of the church, to be part of this movement, to be part of this work, to not choose in these times when when everything is in flux, everything's in transition, things feel overwhelming, things feel despairing, things feel hard. And it it it's understandable that we might feel like Elijah, we want to just curl up in a cave and hide away. And God is saying, no, you are called back to return to the way of the church to return to the way of equality, to return to the way of justice, to return to the way of freedom, to return to the way of humanity—a vision of humanity in which we're all free to love God, to love each other in the way that God intended, to live with dignity, to live with full humanity, to live with the the freedom to be healthy and to be whole, and to um to to have housing and to have rights and to live and breathe without fearing. Um, death and violence. This is the world God imagines and this is the work that we are called to as the church to enact this way of Jesus, to enact and return to the prophetic call. And so what is God saying to you? What is your part in this? It might be small, it might be big, it will look different for all of us. Maybe for some of us it means just speaking out, standing up to to leaders in our workplace and calling out um, unjust things that we see. Maybe it's calling out prejudice that we see in our friends or our family or neighbors and just saying hey that's not okay to believe that about this person or this group of people. Maybe it's um, trying to work in our city locally. Uh, for, for change and advocating for change, speaking out, calling calling um, out poli- politicians. And I'll just say this past week, I wrote a letter to all the city council members and to the mayor after another, yet another police killing in the city of San Leandro. And I have a couple calls with council members next week. And, and some of us might be just called to to care for the sick and vulnerable in this time or to to share our food, to share our resources. Um, some of it might just be simple acts like sharing fruit from our garden um, or the harvest from our gardens. I don't know what it is. Um, it will look different for all of us. And yet I believe for each of us here in this time, in this moment when it's so easy to hide, it's so easy to go into ourselves and focus on our suffering, our pain, our loneliness. God is saying, no, look back, look out, return to your way, return to the way that I've called you to, and know that I am with you, and you are not alone. And so take a minute now where you are, just to reflect, to ask God, what is God saying to me? What is my part in this work? What is my part in this movement? What is my part in uh, returning uh, the church to this prophetic office that we have and are invited into? What is God saying? And as, as Michael leads us in a song to close, um, during that time as we worship, feel free to share in the chat if there's something specific God's calling you to, to share it, uh, as small as it might be, as big as it might be, to, to share that with us so we can know that what God is saying. Let me close this in a word of prayer.